me tell you about a guy named Gordon Hall. Anybody heard of Gordon Hall? All right. Uh, I didn't know before this week either, but he's this uh, larger-than-life millionaire. And he made all his money in the 80s. He made it uh, mostly by opening up uh, a, a franchise of a bunch of 24-hour gyms. That's kind of not, no big deal to us, but back in the 80s, it was a really big deal. So they were popping up everywhere. He's making, hand, he's making money hand over fist. He's buying all his real estate up in Phoenix as it just expo- explodes with population. And by the time he was 33, he was worth $100 million. And it was his goal to be worth a billion dollars just five years later at 38. So he, uh, because he had all this money, he had a huge house. 52,000 square feet. 52,000 square feet. 37 bathrooms. 12 bedrooms, six kitchens, a bowling alley, a movie theater that fit 150 people, which is about the size of this room. He had an indoor ice skating rink. And of course, he had to have a port for his helicopter, you know, all on property there. And he was interviewed by, by People magazine in 1986. And here's what he told the reporter. He said, we have always existed as intelligences. We're down here to gain a body. As man is now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. If you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a God. And I believe it. This is why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a God. My God in heaven creates worlds and universes, and I believe I can do anything too. Sounds crazy, doesn't he? I I mean, it, it probably doesn't even seem very relatable. I mean, he lives in a house with 37 bathrooms. And I'm pretty pretty sure none of you would have the audacity to say, you know, my genetic makeup is to be a God. Pretty sure none of you would say that. But if you are honest, you can see something of yourself in Gordon Hall. There's something in the human heart that strives. You long to know that your life is worthwhile. You long to know that it's meaningful. You long to have something that's going to get you out of bed in the morning. Something that when you're old and gray, you can look back on and can be proud of. This longing has always been true. It's been true for people across time. And we're going to see it in the ancient text that we're going to look at this morning in Genesis chapter 11. We'll read verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from the Lord 
Disperse them over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. This story really has two parts. It's got the part where man builds up, verses 1 to 4. And then 5 to 9 is God tearing down. And you see what they're trying to build up, verse 4. They're trying to build a city. And this city's got massive potential. We have two reasons to believe it has massive potential. The first is that they all speak one language. And man, does that make cooperation with one another far easier than if they all had different languages? I mean, I think of the time where I went to Belarus several years ago and I was preaching at a church, and I could only give two sentences at a time. And you guys know, I'm somewhere between 24 and 26 minutes every single Sunday. I mean, I keep it right in there. So here I am, I'm going to preach my 24 to 26 minute sermon in Belarus, and guess how long it takes? 48 to 52 minutes. It was a really long sermon, and just two minutes at a t- two sentences at a time for me, then it's translated. Two sentences translated. It was the clunkiest thing I've ever been a part of. And so here these people are. They're gathered from all over the place, and language was not a hindrance to them whatsoever. So of course it has potential. They can get it done because they can communicate. And the second reason it's got potential is that they're using this new technology. They're using bricks instead of stone. Think about it. With the bricks, they're able to have this, they're able to fit up these structures in the city, particularly the tower, and they can put it together perfectly because the bricks are all uniform. So here we have it. I mean, everything sounds great. They have this vision for this grand utopia. If you read carefully, you'll notice that there's a shadow being cast over this project by the narrator. But let me be loud and clear. There's nothing wrong with them wanting to build a city. The problem is the reason they want to build a city. It's not to honor and please God. They, they want to do it for opposing purposes than what God would have them be. So here are the five clues. The first one you see in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, if you count up the number of first-person pronouns, you will find four. Four in two verses. So here they are. They're taking on this huge project, and it seems like God is nowhere in the plans. Just a lot of me and we. The second clue we have is verse 2. It says they're, they're from the east. And up to this point, Genesis, east is not a positive term. East was the direction that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. East is the direction that Cain went after he murders his brother. And so what the narrator is trying to do is to tip you off. He's trying to tip you off that there's this seedy underbelly to this urban project. Because the participants have come from the east. Third clue, verse 2, you see, it says settled there. I mean, it sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? And these people from multiple locales have come to one place and they're settling there? What's so wrong about that? Well, Genesis 1.28, we have Adam and Eve and they're told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The whole earth. Then God tells Noah and his descendants the same thing in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and then again in chapter 9, verse 7. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He doesn't want all the people to settle on one spot. He wants them to explore his creation, to spread out and cultivate the whole of the earth. See the underbelly. Number four. Fourth clue is the easiest one to spot. It's right there in verse four. It says, 
where uh, the people at Babel say, let us make a name for ourselves. Make a name for ourselves. If you remember, if you've been with us, then chapters 1 to 10, there's a lot of content about names. And all the names are being given from a superior to an inferior. In fact, it happens 11 times. And then if you were to look even wider and zoom out and see who makes a name for themselves in the whole of the Bible, the only person who makes a name for themselves is God. So it's quite clear, actually, what's going on here. What the people at Babel want is that they want recognition. That's why this project's so important to them. They're trying to do what we all do. They're trying to stave off their feelings of worthlessness. They're not content with the lot that they've been given by their creator. It's not enough for them to be an image bearer with the responsibility to cultivate the earth. It's just not. They don't want to be dependent. They want independence. They want autonomy. And in the end, they want the glory and fame that's reserved for God himself. So you see the, cat, the, the shadows being cast. Look at the second half of verse 4. In the second half of verse 4, the first half you saw their motivation was to make a name for themselves. The second half of verse 4, you see the fear that they have. And their fear is to be disconnected. Their fear is to be alone. They want to keep the band together. They don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth as God would have them be. Doesn't that sound like me and you? I mean, how true is this of us that we discard God's call to cultivate his creation in order to hunker down in our family, in order to seek safety in a clan of historic friends where we have relational predictability and we do it all over God's mission. So put these five pieces together. The first person pronoun, they're from the east. They settled there. They don't want to be dispersed over the face of the earth and be separated from one another. And they're trying to make a name for themselves. You put this puzzle together and you see that they have this common trait that we all have, and it's pride. All that comes from the place where they love themselves themselves. Recently, I, I was meeting with a, a new friend of mine. I, I didn't really know much about him. We had a lot of common friends, so I knew a little bit about him. He knew a little bit about me, but we had never really spent much time together. And we get together, and I did to him what I've probably done to you, and I asked him a series of questions for 90 minutes straight. He talked about himself for 90 minutes, and I loved every second of it. And we get out in the parking lot, and this guy's in ministry too, and he realized, he said, Marsh. I just talked about myself for 90 minutes straight. And I was like, yeah, you did. And he said, well, I guess that's my favorite topic of conversation is me. And I thought it was funny. There's nothing sinister about what was going on there, but it, it reminded me of this passage. That we all think that we're the center of the universe, that, our, that we really put our interests in the middle of all things, and it's appalling, really. And you've got to ask yourself the question, whose name is most important to you? What tower are you trying to build? How are you trying to make a name for yourself? See, the common project we should really all be on is fighting our pride. 
former archbishop of the Church of England, his name's Michael Ramsey, died about 40 years ago, and he gave three, three practices to fight pride, and the first he gave is the confession of sin. And he says that when you're engaging in this practice, corporately in worship and then individually in your own life, you will increasingly see that when things go wrong, that it's not always someone else's fault. You'll see that you almost always play a significant role when things don't work out. The confession of sin fights pride. The second practice, he says, is gratitude. Because gratitude is mostly about trying to spot the good in your life and seeing the cause of that good to be God and not you. The third practice he gives is the one I like the most, and it's to make friends with people who will laugh at you. This past Friday, just, you know, just two days ago, I got to do something I was so, I was so excited about. Um, I just on this text thread that I've not been on, and it's been years, and uh, it's with my old high school buddies. Most of them live in northern Kentucky or Cincinnati, and you put this text out on January 24th, and uh, 10 out of 10, the 10 guys who got texted all show up in, in, in Covington this past Friday night. And it was great. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, these were my best buddies in high school. And I didn't know how many kids they have. I, I really don't even know. I, I knew if they were married, but some of them I knew weren't still married. But I wasn't sure about anybody else. You know, there was just a lot we didn't know about one another. And we get together and we talk for a couple hours just trying to catch up about jobs and family stuff. It was great. But not long after that, we did what we had always done all through growing up, and we made fun of each other. I mean, I laughed harder on Friday night than I ever have. And it was great. And it was great because when you have friends like that, when you're not trying to curry favor from one another for some professional purpose, when you're not trying to pull rank on one another, when your friendship really just is about being friends and that's it, then you probably will have friends who don't take you very serious. And when you have people in your life who don't take you very serious, then you won't take yourself very serious. And you'll be fighting your pride. So zoom out just a minute. You see in verses 1 to 4 this tremendously powerful group of people. They've got this common language. And language is their strength. It's the gift that God had given them to name the animals, to have dominion over the earth. But now they're using that language to rival God. And you begin to wonder, what's God going to do? Well, he can't wipe them out. He already promised he wouldn't do that after the flood. But what he does do is that he confuses their language. Now they can't cooperate with the same kind of efficiency and speed and effectiveness, and so the project is halted. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't destroy the city. He doesn't knock over the tower because that's not his chief concern. His chief concern is to get them to rule on his behalf over the earth. That's why he intervenes. He's got to ensure that what he wants done actually gets done. It's kind of like Jonah. Many of you, you know the story of Jonah. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a place where his enemies dwelled. He didn't like the Ninevites whatsoever. And so he gets in a ship and he goes off in the opposite direction. But just because Jonah's going in the opposite direction from where God wants him to go, it doesn't stop God getting what he wants done. So what God does is he sends a storm and Jonah ends up being thrown overboard. I want you to imagine if you could pause time and have a conversation with Jonah when he's heading headfirst down into the water, being thrown off the ship in the middle of the storm, and you were able to stop and say, Hey, Jonah, 
do you think you're going to end up in Nineveh? I think he'd say, no, I'm going to die. That's where I'm going to end up is the bottom of this ocean. But God has other plans, doesn't he? And through this series of circuitous events, he's swallowed by a whale and he's spit up on the shores of Nineveh and God gets Jonah where he wants him and he does it without Jonah's permission. That sounds a lot like our text, doesn't it? I mean, even though the people at Babel are going literally in the exact opposite direction of where God tells them to go by coming together for the purpose of exalting themselves, he spreads them out to cultivate creation. He accomplishes his purpose without their permission. Has God ever done that to you? I mean, you had your plan, you had your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, but just didn't work out. Are you able to look back and you see that God frustrated your plans and he did it because he had something better in mind? See, if you stop and think about this text or you think about your life, you begin to see that it's God's kindness to you when he frustrates your plans. It's his grace because you would end up in a far worse spot if he didn't. Things would have gotten much, much worse I mean, think about Babel. If they had finished building this city and they'd finished building the tower, can you think about how much more arrogant and prideful they would have become? If they would have finished what they set out to do? It's really scary if you think about it. This takes me back to Gordon Hall. You know, Gordon Hall, now he's in his 70s, and his notions of grandeur, they've been stripped from him. He never became a billionaire. He no longer lives in a house with 37 bathrooms. He lives in a much smaller confines, much less comfortable accommodations, a federal prison cell. That's where he lives. He, he got upwards of 25 years in jail because he was orchestrating a $93 million Ponzi scheme with roots in the mafia. So you see, I mean, his, his rise was spectacular, but so was his downfall, and he never became a God, go figure. It's a pretty hopeless story. It's hopeless, kind of like our passage. I mean, read our passage, you're like, where's the hope here? Well, in order to find the hope, you've got to zoom out a little bit. In other places, you have these hopeless texts in, in, in chapters 1 to 10. You've got the end of 3 after Adam and Eve and the serpent have been cursed. You get a little bit of hope at the end where Adam names his wife the mother of the living. You get a little bit of hope where God gives them animal skins as covering after he expels them from the garden. In the Cain episode, you see that Cain clearly can't be the line of promise and Abel was the line of promise, but he's been killed, but... Eve has another son named Seth. There's the hope. you got the generations that follow that lead up to Noah, and you see in Noah that there's a remnant, even though the evil increases among the earth. There's hope. Last week we saw that Noah had three sons, and we saw that the first one, Ham, that he's wicked, but there's the remnant of Shem and Japheth who cover Noah's shame. But where's the hope here? Where's the hope in Genesis 11? It's just not in these verses. You begin to see the hope. It's progressively unfolding in the biblical narrative. In the first place, you see it is just in chapter 12. You see it with Abraham, where God enters into a covenant with him and he promises to make his name great. And this is to counter Babel, the Babel episode where they're trying to make 
a name for themselves. God tells Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Also, with the promise to Abraham, God promised them a land where they're going to come together, not for, not for evil purposes, but they're going to come together in a land and worship him. God promises Noah that he's going to, or promises Abraham that he's going to have a community. And the community is going to be made up of, 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 of numerous descendants. That he's going to bring, make them a community. He's going to bring in the nations and draw them into that worship. They don't need to fear being dispersed anymore. And you keep flipping through the Old Testament and you'll find Zephaniah chapter 3. And Jeff, Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah is talking on behalf of God where God envisions a day that's going to come in the future. And he says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And we see that day coming. That day comes in the scriptures that day comes not because God's people lay out the strategic plan to accomplish Zephaniah 3. They don't break it down into steps and put dates on it and then for dates for completion. It doesn't have measurable goals. It doesn't have an incentive structure. That's not how they achieve being a people of one pure speech. No, that, that day came when Jesus came to us. And you think about his life, he's gathering people unto himself. He's got a common purpose of worshiping the Father, but in the end, his people scatter. They scatter when they are afraid of the governing authorities of Jesus' crucifixion. But then even after Jesus' resurrection, he begins to gather a few others, and you get to that point, the point where Jesus ascends into heaven, you're like, I don't see Zephaniah 3. Where's the place where all the people are gathered together in one accord and they have one pure speech? Well, you see it in Acts 2. You see it in what we read earlier. And what we read earlier, you have the nations coming together in Jerusalem for the Passover. And the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. And instead of being confused by each other's language, God allows them to understand one another. Somehow, the Holy Spirit alters the effect of language from deconstructing the community to reconstructing the new community of the church. It's with the Holy Spirit that they're able to hear and understand, unlike Babel, where there's fear. See, remember Babel, they're all unified around their pride, but in Acts chapter 2, they're unified by the Spirit. And so, brother and sister, you and I, we have this unity. We have this unity not because we've all bought into the common mission, values, and vision of our church. That's not why we have unity. We have unity because we have the same Holy Spirit that interlocks us. It's an objective reality. And Jesus in his kindness from time to time he gives us these subjective tastes that last for just a minute where we experience what Jesus prayed for us in John 17 verse 21 that, that we be one even as he and the Father are one. And you always want more, don't you? You want more unity, especially across difference. And the good news is that that day's coming. We see that day coming in Revelation chapter 21, where a city comes down from heaven that we don't build. And the city is just one that we receive. It's a city where we'll be unified as a diversity of people. And as Revelation chapter 7 says, that we won't be there to make a name for ourselves, but we'll be there to extol the name of the Lord. We'll be there to extol him, singing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the day of unity that's coming. 
See, brother and sister, our, our, our humanity, it's found in our worship. It's not found in making our name great. It's found in making God's name great. Brother and sister, our community, it's, it's not found in using one another to give us a sense of security. It's found in partnership as we cultivate creation together. Brother and sister, our, our unity, it's, it's not found in sameness. It's not found in stacking hands on some secular endeavor. Unity can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit bringing together a diversity of peoples. So brother and sister, we need to repent today. We need to repent that we've been building towers of family. We need to repent that we've been building towers of money. We've been building towers of professional excess. We've been building towers to conservatism or towards liberalism. And we need to accept our limits. And we need to receive Jesus as a child. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we see just how relevant this text is. Lord, that you have these people just building a tower. It seems so pointless to us, but Lord, I, if you give us the perspective of looking back on our lives and the way we've spent our time and used our energy, we'll see it's pretty pointless too. And Lord, I pray that we would see that the only way we can have real purpose, a real reason to get out of bed in the morning is coming in line with you. Lord, that's what our hearts long for. You open us up to that. In Christ's name, amen.